0: How, should I just sit here and wait till? Yeah, Is yeah. There anything I need to do.
1: <laughs> no, in fact, I already hit record. That, I think that'll be the that'll be the opening. <laughs> okay. I don't think we've ever opened with. Have we ever opened with the with our with a guest before? Yeah, but I don't even know what we're doing. I'm so confused right now. I don't Joe, even know what we're doing. Uh, oh, uh, this harkens back to earlier episodes where you kept trying to get me either to use theme music or to use some common opening or whatever. So let's start it like that. Hi, Joe. Hello oh my god oh i wasn't supposed to do that no you're supposed to say hi christian oh shoot. remember remember how you kept wanting that to happen forever yeah, yeah. okay let's do it again okay <clears throat> hi joe hello christian <laughs> it's I so did... funny that you say hello and i say hi did I not it's like so typical so typical <laughs> <laughs> hey, typical of what joe joe who's our guest today charles barson who wrote a paper called three forms <laughs> of legal pragmatism um, and, um, boy, it'd be great if you were already on the line. Yeah, I'm right here.
0: <laughs> oh, whoa. <laughs>
1: uh, so, so, so here's, so the reason, so I thought we would just, cause I'm not, I wasn't sure in fact that we had said your name and, and everything that needed to be set up front. So we usually do a little bit of a cold open. Um, mm-hmm. sometimes we open the mailbag and a cold, we're not going to do that today. No. Is there anything? I mean, everything is still terrible. You guys get a lot of mail? yeah I mean we yeah, we probably don't get as much as like the first Monday's guys. Yeah
2: it's not the frequency, it's the quality i, I <laughs> the quality of the of the stuff we get from people is is um is unparalleled, unmatched in its awesomeness.
1: It is really good. Oral at gmail.com we have,
2: We get very deep feedback because we have very uh, great, wonderful listeners.
1: Yeah, but we usually bundle it up. we'll have a mailbag episode, and we um, yeah. can also tweet us at oral argument. Uh, you can't reach us on Facebook anymore. Oh, really? Did yeah. Delete hashtag I didn't, delete Facebook? It, it's still there. It's still there. I just don't update it anymore.
2: So, Charles, when you say the word hashtag, do you actually yeah. make a little gesture with your fingers, like I'm making now? Yeah. Hashtag?
1: No. I wish you wouldn't do that.
0: Is that is that what one does?
1: I <laughs> not, not anybody that I know.
0: I felt like I was at out the outer limits there of even saying that. Yeah. Because I, I'm like, I barely know the context in which that's appropriate to say.
2: Right. I think the finger gesture is sort of a... Like a Saturday Night Live kind of concept, or uh, or you know, Portlandia, or something like that.
1: Yeah, I, I'm thinking a lot about finger gesture right now. So, uh, <laughs> so, uh, is, 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 so yeah. It was just anything else going on before we get to the main event. Anything you wanted to mention, Joe?
2: No, but well, yes. Um, oh. What I want to mention is I'm so glad that at one point in reference to what we're doing right now, you use the word inception because I can't tell which layer of reality I'm in right now because of how discombobulated (laughs) all of this stuff is.
1: Well, because that's going to, that's, I refer to that at the very end of the episode, right? And and this is going to be, this is going to be at the beginning. Right. Oh, I see. And at the time you were asking like, what do I do? Like the listeners have already heard what we did. Right. So they're like, like, of course he already knows it's all, see, it's all, you know, this is like the better example, maybe is primer. The movie Primer. Who mm. haven't seen that? What's that? Oh, my God. So good. By the really? guy who did Upstream Color. Um, oh, yeah. it's, it's terrific. Just terrific. But I'm not going to say any more. Just watch it. Charles, it-
2: do not watch that movie because it will <sighs> take away too much time. You can watch it, but you have to watch it in a pocket universe where it doesn't take time away from the other stuff that you do.
1: Oh, okay. boy. So, so one last bit of Inception. How yes. do, ha, Charles, how do we do discussing the paper? Do we hit everything you wanted to hit? Yeah, no, it's great. All right, so let's let's have at it
0: then. Okay, great. Let's do it. <laughs> um, do you want to sort of start over? I mean, do you want to like, <laughs> pretend we, like pretend like we're just golfing or something?
1: That is a much deeper question than you realize, I think. Because <laughs> uh, jo- let me let me put it this way to Joe: Joe, do you want to start over? <laughs> A clean sheet. <laughs> well, we can't. We can't ever
2: unring the. He doesn't really know about John Hodgman. Bell. Oh. Oh yeah.
0: Wait. So I, I'm. I'm confused. Am I getting confused? I was thinking of the the, the the comedian used to be on the Daily Show. Or am I getting confused? Yeah.
2: I mean, using the word comedian. I mean, <laughs> it's it's not like it's inaccurate, but it's so radically incomplete <laughs> that it's it's just a little bit devastating. Um, so here here's what I would like you to do.
1: Okay. Uh, well, what, what's an analogy that that like uh, like uh, I'm trying to think of like Joe Miller, like you know, noted car buyer, <laughs> which like, Joe, right. It's not it's not that it's untrue. It's if, not that it's untrue, and it's not even that it's not distinctive because Joe Joe buys cars like the rest of us buy groceries.
2: Not quite, not quite, but but close enough for for uh, to a <laughs> first order approximation. He does buy cars more often
1: than most people do.
2: So, so here's what I would say. I would say that um, one, what it indicates is that you look, and and Charles. Because I read everything you publish, it's Ooh. not like I don't want you to spend time doing what you've been doing. So this is <laughs> this is not a critique of you of your life choices at all. I really understand. Uh, but it's very clear that you don't listen to the Judge John Hodgman podcast. And I think oh, no. as, oh, no. I love podcasts
0: as like yours. What, uh, what uh, tell me? What's it called? The Judge
2: John Hodgman podcast. And it's on the I forget the name maximum of the, name, the fun. Max fun maximum fun uh is the name of the network? But, what a
1: great name for a network!
2: But it is. But but I think you would really because he's actually a f- f- he's actually a pretty deep thinker about oh, really? okay, legal okay. disputes and and the humanism of legal disputes. Yeah, oh, and so okay. I think you would really enjoy the way he does what he does. Okay, um, great. And and uh, some
1: episodes exemplify this more than others. That's some are true. more jokey. Some are more. Yeah,
2: but if you listen to two or three of them, you will start to get a real feel for. Uh, um for him and the way he thinks about disputes
1: and how to work through disputes, Um, which relates very much to this paper. I mean, he's, he's very much a holist, wouldn't you say? Yes, I
2: think that's right. Um, He, I think that's true. Uh, So that's one thing. I think the, the other thing in terms of the connection to Maine and uh, John Hodgman's relationship with his wife, who has a very deep connection to Maine um, oh. it, his newest book is called Vacation Land and it's sort of a memoir of middle oh. of middle age. Um I don't know your age. Um I'm middle age. Um uh, so <laughs> yeah, so I think I think you would enjoy his book Vacation Land tremendously. Okay, great. Just cuz again, I think of basically to me you're like like some people are about the founders like they they can't have thought or done anything wrong. You're sort <laughs> yes. of like a founder to me. So I, I sort of feel like, you, so I know that everything I like, you will also like, because yes, how definitely. could you
1: not like it? Because you, you're basically awesome. Don't you kind of wish that founder and framer were started with different letters? Because? I, I just feel like people use them interchangeably. And I think a lot of it has to do with that capital F. Mm, that it's just a yeah. good letter. Yeah. Like, do we revere the framers or the founders? If, if it's yeah, is the, there
0: a difference? That should be the next, that should be the next uh, originalist, you know. Uh, debate that they should have a big debate about whether it's the framers or the founders who they care
1: about. Well, if it's the framers, it makes it more obvious that for you know equal protection purposes, for example, you look at the reframers, uh, the framers of the Fourteenth Amendment, rather than the quote unquote founders. But then you might have an even deeper theory that the real founders were the founders after the Civil War. Like you know, you could have a. But you, I think you're whether, like, should
2: the should the word framers start with the letter B? Or something like that. Like, I didn't understand what you meant when you said the letter F.
1: Well, I'm just saying that I think sometimes people are just talking because I know myself. And if I may mean to say framers, but I say founders because they're both like these capital F words that are slung around a lot in reference to people who created the original deal.
2: Right. So you might mean one when you say the other. Right. Okay. Like,
1: how many many of those kind of uh, uh, capitalized, you know, German nouns uh, do we have in our legal discourse? So
2: I hereby declare – and tomorrow will indicate that we should start using the word starters when we're, ta- when we're talking about the founding, and like some then kind framers of, when we're talking about constitution draft, like some kind of yeast.
1: Yeah, like the starters. Yeah, start the start. like you need a little bit of a clump of starting. Right. Yeah. So, you know, some, a little bit of like Scottish Enlightenment, a little bit of like you know French revolutionary. <laughs> right.
2: And or we could call them the the, the declarers um, as but, but
1: as a reference to the Declaration yeah this sounds like an x k c d book in the making you know? <laughs> the, the the country starter uppers
2: so Charles please read vacation land i will but please perfect. do it in a pocket universe that does not take
1: any time away from everything else you already do well i have okay. i have the solution for that, and oh. that is the audio book, which is read by john uh, hodgman himself wow oh, and, and definitely do that. yeah if you get the audiobook you can put it on 2x and it sounds great and it sounds you know and, and and you know you can do it while you're doing other things like cleaning the dishes or something
0: yeah yeah i rarely actually read books anymore i almost always do that
1: yeah don't uh, you wish by the way s- s- do not you put say it that, on double do, do
2: not put it on double speed though that's just so offensive it's not let the man read his book in his own oh,
0: way i would never do that oh
1: I don't understand that at all. You don't understand what?
0: Which side? People listening to things at two x speed. Oh, Charles! See now I'm disappointed.
2: He's no, because Charles is awesome and wonderful, and of (laughs) course he doesn't listen to stuff at bullshit double x speed. Well,
0: my brain, my brain is too slow. I mean, I just can't do that. I'm impressed by people who can, but I I just
2: don't be impressed.
1: <laughs> it's a it's a it's a philistine way to live. I've actually thought, you know, I, I so hate listening to our podcast at one X that I've often yeah. thought I should just ship it at two X. I should just oh apply his things in advance because no. it sounds I think our podcast is great at two X. At one X it is insufferable.
2: Listening to yourself and listening to others is a different thing. And the day you ship it at 2x is that will be the last episode. I promise you that. Well, it's good to know that I now
1: have an exit strategy. You do. Yeah. You do. I've just labeled it for you. That oh will literally God. be
2: the last episode.
1: Um I- it's something you get used to. And then, you know, when you, when, you, when you listen to a podcast, you normally listen to it 2X, at 1X. And we talked about, like, our listeners, are like, they've talked about this before. Like, I, yeah, I'm hitting stop endlessly. forever on this. So maybe I shouldn't even mention it before. But people sound so, like, people, you're like, whoa, what happened to you? Like, did you get hit in the head or something? Like, why do you sound like, you know? <laughs> uh,
2: I listen, and I listen to oral arguments, Supreme Court oral arguments at an enhanced speed. But, mm-hmm.
1: but 2X is just beyond I, the pale. I love how you said enhanced speed, recognizing that it is a... Uh, uh, a, 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 yeah it's an improvement it is a perfection of of the uh original at a greater speed <laughs> I will it, not use the greater I like that one too
0: the subtitle of that guy's of Hodgman's book is true stories from painful beaches and yeah it sounds like a great title because I find all beaches painful more or less and I wonder if he's writing I wonder if some of them are in Maine
1: oh yes yeah you, you should I don't think we should spoil more. uh but it, it is not it it's you know, when I first heard he was writing it, I thought it was going to be more of a vacation memoir, but it really is not. It touches on lots of things. Yes. Oh, it is. Okay. That's yeah. Just so it's really good. It, it is really good. And it may yeah. turn
2: out that, and, and this would be wonderful if it turned out, you and he are actually the same person, and this has all been an elaborate charade. Like that there are only really, there's only really one person.
0: you never, never in the same room at the same time. Correct.
2: And it, and you're actually John Hodgman and Charles Barzin. That would be, I think, entirely unsurprising and amazingly awesome.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. No, it looks like it's, it's all about man. Oh, this is great. I've got to read this. I, I'm going to read this immediately.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You, yeah. It's it's a doing. clever ruse, Charles. A clever ruse. You wrote it. <laughs> yeah. You don't great. need to read it.
0: Uh, they describe him as a garrison killer for Gen Xers. See, that, oh, that's not good. That is
1: not – yeah, I would not. <laughs> I would not have said that. No. I don't uh, think he would have said that. I'm surprised that no. that made it into any promotional materials whatsoever. No. But So we we need to talk about three forms of legal pragmatism. So, yeah. You know, sometimes well, – we don't need to. We want to. Sometimes I listen back to the show and, I, and I'm and i and I'm listening back and I'm realizing, huh, we never actually set up what this paper was about. We're just kind of assuming <laughs> yes that, that people you know, it will know or gather from context. I mean this is the sense in which maybe – uh although we've done this show a bunch maybe i'm not so good at this um so because of the framing is a little rough or yeah we usually try to say let's go back and like set up for the readers listeners who haven't you know read the paper like what's it about but sometimes we get too impatient we skip through that i think this is one where it's absolutely critical to say at the outset like what the paper is about like what what is the problem that you're addressing and uh Either you can do this or Joe can do this. Uh, anybody. But I
2: would me. love to hear Charles do
1: it. Okay.
0: Uh, okay. Oh, uh, that's too bad. I was going to say. I hope you can do it. No, that's fine. <laughs> uh, well, I guess one way to think about it as the problem to be solved or what the issue is. Well, uh, one way is to think of it as just that legal pragmatism is one of those words that is thrown around a lot. Pragmatism in general is. Uh, it's like a lot of isms. You know, just has tons of of meanings, and so the worry in such a case is always that it's sort of devoid of all meaning. Um, and I guess so. Part of the Point of the paper is to say that there is a it is a broad uh, family of views, but I try to distinguish among w- what I see as the kind of three different versions or forms of pragmatism. And it, the paper is partly historical and partly I don't know philosophical or analytic or something. Um, I'm trying to kind of map out different strains of thought over basically the last hundred years. And the the, the suggestion is basically that that. Uh, that all these different versions of legal pragmatism are responding to the same kind of underlying problem, um, which is essentially justifying values in a you know, in a naturalistic world, giving a, a, an explanation for how it is that we can reason about what to do, uh, engage in practical reasoning uh, in a way that's it's justifiable. And the, they broadly, what unites them as pragmatists is, is in the first place, that they're broadly empiricists, they fall in the, in the empiricist tradition, they emphasize experience uh, that experience should be our guide in some sense, but where they differ is in what they mean by experience. And that's the basic thing that I'm kind of trying to track is how and I'd think of it as sort of wide and narrow understandings of experience, where in the traditional kind of scientific understanding of the empiricist tradition, it's uh, experience is just basically you know information we we gather from our five senses, um particularly. Sight usually is the sort of dominant one, Um, but but other things too, other senses, too. And then and then a broader notion of experience is something like, you know, lived experience or uh, something more that captures, tries to capture our moral and maybe even in this context, legal intuitions about things, uh, kind of felt reactions to phenomena.
1: You hesitated when you said lived experience, just like you hesitated in the writing. Like, I, like, I pick up that like you kind of like recoil against like the word well, the phrase. I don't know. Kind of,
0: it's come to have a kind of particular meaning that I don't quite mean to imply yeah. in using it, although it is relevant. Uh, and that is lived experience is now often used to refer specifically to the lived experience of particular kind of um, either minority groups or or kind of non dominant cultures or or perspectives. I don't mean to imply that specific connotation. It's not that it's against it. It's just. It, it includes that as well, but it's just a broader idea.
2: Now let me let me interject to say you start the paper by also sort of put trying to put your project in connection with Brian Tamanaha's recent yes. book. Um and I, I think he my I very much hope that we're able to have him on to talk about the book or 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 something he's written after the book that I'm interested in talking to him about. The book so, is great.
1: Um hmm? the book is great.
2: Yeah, it really is. Yeah. Um although I haven't finished it yet. But what I've gotten through so far is really great. So so connect us to that. I
1: love it that you leave open the fact that it may be terrible in the end.
2: Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just, you know, I don't want to, like, when I haven't finished, I don't think it's honest to say that I, because I haven't finished it. Right. For myself. Right. Um, but um, uh, trying to keep it transparent here <laughs> uh, at World <laughs> Headquarters. Um, so so just connect yourself to that, sure. to that project. Uh,
0: well, and so there are kind of two answers to this. One very specific and concrete which is that the, I wrote the paper as part of a symposium about his book ah. uh, but the charge was um, the charge was to to us was to not sort of write a comment on his book but just to you know write something of our own in the in sort of a related vein basically um, and so what I did was uh, what I see a lot of the people at the conference were uh, were people who had sort of defended or articulated in some way what I described as kind of a third way Between depending on exactly the domain, it was sometimes between uh, the kind of common law as a as a a, um, third way between natural law and legal positivism as a kind of jurisprudential position, pragmatism as a, a kind of alternative between. Well, I don't know exactly what, uh, maybe some kind of, um, you know, textualism or originalism or some kind of more kind of top-down or authoritative understanding of law, deductive approach to law versus something more consequentialist maybe. So there was, so, so one way, I, so the way I framed my paper was there's a bunch of similarities here. We're all kind of interested in this, in this middle path. But I want to talk about, I want to do further subdivision and talk about three different Three different versions of a kind of middle path,
2: in a sense. It's funny that the middle is so weird to me in a way because it, it sort of it, it tries to treat it as a spatial problem, a, a problem yeah. of spatial description, and it really isn't. I mean, in a sense, right? It's it's really quite. It's really saying, look, there's just something very different, and so <laughs> calling it middle or third or whatever, it's like it's just different, right? Mm. It's it's just looking at things in a different way. Yeah.
0: Th- well, I guess there's a difference, though. Right? Third is more generic. It doesn't necessarily imply that it's, yeah. That's but I agree. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I think that's,
1: could could I, I mean, I think some more general framing would help me. I kind of want to know whether I'm on the same wavelength as you are, Charles, and just thinking in general, because, you know, because the question is like, why, you know, why look at James? Why look at these other writers? Like, what do all these have in common? And it seems to me there are kind of parallel questions going on in philosophy Mm -hmm. in general and in law Mm -hmm. in particular. The general philosophical question, of course, is what should I do? Uh, mm-hmm. which it boils down to like, what kind of creature am I? What is truth and all? That. And, and so in general, it's like, what, how, what is true? How do I know what is true? And then what, what makes a project good, you know, and, and what is the relationship between good projects and truth? I mean, that all those questions kind of go together. And similarly in law, there's a question of, uh, you know, not what shall I do, but how shall I decide cases? How shall I decide what to do within law? Which comes down to questions about like, how do I know what is true in law? And then how do mm-hmm. I know what is good in law? And what is the relation between what is true and what is good in law? And pragmatism provides a particular kind of answer to that, you know, what should I do question and what do I know question, right? That, that mm-hmm. you know, there is a kind of, there are all kinds of stories we have in our mind, all kinds of things that we think are true in our minds. And uh, pragmatism is a way of saying, you know, how do I pick out which of those stories corresponds to a reality I'm willing to accept? And and um and and the idea is that somehow it should come down to experience, right this marries mm-hmm. kind of the synthetic you know it, well, it creates a kind of synthetic tradition but but it 's uh and, and you distinguish between the kind of narrow and wide senses of experience, but one the narrow sense is just my sensory experience so if i have mm-hmm. a a thought about maybe maybe the nature of reality is that there is a chariot that goes through the sky that carries a big ball of of uh, uh, of fire. And, you know, the whether it makes it all the way through the sky depends on whether I sacrifice. So, you know, I have this story about reality and uh, I can engage in some observations if I'm careful enough, which will disprove that story. And so pragmatism is a way of engaging in in uh, sensory, uh, kind of marrying my sensory experience to stories that I think may or may not be true, right? And, and uh, But then there's this wider sense of experience which might not just rely on sensory experience. And so then okay. so too in law – I may have all kinds of stories about what I think law should be doing, uh, and what what our law has been. Well, like what is our tradition really? And you know, one of the ways of seeing like the legal realist tradition into legal process scholars, and then the the crit response is that I need to check these stories I might tell about what the law has been doing. Kind of the principles which correspond to these kind of rationalist analytical stories I'm telling in my mind in in general, um, I need to check those against like how has law in fact been applied? Uh, What has law done in the lives of people who live under it? Like these kinds of empirical sensory questions Mm -hmm. can kind of distinguish between these stories. So I I know I haven't said that super well because I haven't written it it down. I'm just kind of thinking through in my mind after I read your paper this morning what these parallel tracks are, Um, uh, uh, the general philosophical one on one side and the uh, particular legal um track on the other and i hadn't thought before um of the correspondence in quite this way um it's, i don't am i am i on absolutely board with no the, your I project? Think everything yeah.
0: you've said is that that's i mean that's a very good description of exactly what i'm trying to say which is that there's this philosophical question that, at the very general level about what to do and uh, that requires making these kinds of value judgments and learning information about the world um, and that the judge is in the position of having to do that. And so I try to frame, in the early part of the paper, frame kind of what Benjamin Cardozo, Judge Cardozo, was doing, grappling with in the uh, adjudicatory context, essentially the same kind of issues that James was grappling with at, at a more general level. And I should say one thing, one, one of the comments I got on this paper, which I think is a very, which is a fair one, an important one, and I, I hope I in some way make clear, is that it's a very, what I'm talking about, it's really, what I'm talking about is kind of theories of adjudication. I mean, I talk about loosely about law, but it's, you know, law is a lot of things and there are a lot of people who engage with law and think about law, a lot of legal actors and all sorts of domains. And I'm really focused on the very kind of traditional narrow understanding of just sort of a judge, you know, trial or appellate judge deciding cases.
2: Now, what was, what was missing in what Christian summarized, but what you said, uh, very briefly, at the beginning of, of your description of, of what you're doing in the in the paper, um, is this notion of a, um, a disconnect or a gap or, a, or a, a need of justification between fact and value and yeah. that, that there's that there's a, a perception or an experience of something missing or something you know a thing that is hard to
1: square, a circle that is hard to square, and yeah. where is that? And give, give an example of that in, say, in law so the listeners have a concrete idea of, like, what a, a fact is. And yeah, that's yeah. a
2: great idea because I think that's – that's where some of the – that's like the fuel in this car that's traveling on these different tracks, as it, right. at least as I sense it.
0: Yeah, I mean it could be any – it could be any basically I – mean, so if we if we think of the, of, of a kind of – let's imagine a, a common law judge um, to make – sort of simplify it to some extent, uh, dealing in a hard case where – Let's stipulate, of course this is controversial, but let's kind of stipulate that there are some domain of easy cases where settled rules of law provide easy answers, and so the judge, you know, sort of reasons syllogistically and uh, uh, applies the the settled rule to particular facts in the case and reaches an outcome. Usually when those are that simple, they don't even make it to an appellate court or even a trial court, but let's it's like the cases. president
1: has to be 35 years old yes, or exactly. walking my dog is not an antitrust violation. Right. These are, <laughs> right. And, exactly. and those don't come to court because people don't need them to go to court yeah. to find out what to do. These are, I got exactly. those from Larry Solom, like who's written about, who, who insists that there are, in fact, easy cases. But, yes, yeah. Yeah. exactly.
0: And, and, and Fred Schauer has got that great article with that title, Easy Cases, uh, I think, at least. Um, and so yeah, exactly. So let's and so of course you can be skeptical about that. You can say, well, there's it's all there's sort of indeterminacy all the way down, and it just whatever. We we can put that kind of that might be true, but let's put it aside. And so we're talking about uh, uh, so-called hard cases where there's just kind of openness about it. And you can think about how a judge might go through. I mean, I, I'm trying, it's hard for me to think of an example because literally any case, any hard case would do. It's where you're trying to figure out wh- what you would look to. In order to make a decision where where it's somewhat indeterminate or it's somewhat open ended, and one approach could look at um, uh, you know the consequences. Look as much social science as you can about the consequences of some particular rule on social or economic life, whatever it is. Say some um, you know labor li- rule related to labor and working conditions, right? You look to I mean th- I guess what the reason I thought of that is because of the famous Brandeis brief, which is where you know Louis Brandeis uh, laid out all these studies about the working conditions um uh in the early 20th century uh as, as part of his brief as part of his argument and of course it might be that some that some methods of of decision making are appropriate in certain contexts and others are appropriate in other ones but another one would be to look at the particular facts of the case and think about it and reflect upon what the judge thinks and this is a very of course traditional kind of common law idea the sort of situation sense Right, that kind of intuitive sense of what's fair or appropriate or just or, or maybe even efficient. We might have uh, have intuitions about efficiency, some kind of intuitive sense of what makes sense on these particular facts. So that would be another different kind of approach. And instead of looking to the data about the consequences of a particular rule, you're looking to your own kind of felt reaction to it. Um, and yet a third one would be looking at look trying to make figure out what makes sense broadly with certain deep principles in the, in, in the law already, seeing which one best fits with the overall um, sort of settled law insofar as it embodies or reflects deep legal and moral principles. So those are the three kind of different ways how you might think about what the best way to make a decision is in a hard case, I wanna suggest. Uh, and those are all pragmatic ways yeah and i want to say all of those are broadly pragmatic because they're all basically looking to kind of experience in some in some sense they're not trying to deduce from the um from some top rule uh and 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 infer from that they're sort of in some ways bottom up
1: so just to joe's going to jump in but just to uh make it as crisp as possible your your working notion of pragmatism is that it is uh a way of arriving at a decision based on experience. And, yes. and there's a, there's a particular branch of that, which we might call empiricism, which, which says only certain kind of experiences count like sensory experiences plus, but there's also a broader notion of experience, which leads to a slightly different notion of pragmatism.
0: That's right. Yeah, that's right. The only thing I would slightly is, which is just a labeling thing is I, I would think of them as all broadly within a kind of empiricist tradition. Uh, maybe i 'd so i maybe instead of calling an empiricist i'd i'd say something like a more scientific or or, or somehow a narrow a narrow understanding of, of experience, but yes, the substance of what you said I think is exactly right
2: so in what way then is there some disconnect between fact and value that has to be justified in the shadow of which all of this is happening
0: oh yeah okay so that 's the ba- sorry so yeah, that was your original question and I kind of somehow glossed over that or forgot about that i mean the, the so the, with the fact and value is just you know i mean the way uh, there are so many different ways of kind of framing that basic problem but it's it's essentially a, assuming let's sort of begin with a premise that there is no god basically right that we're not working in a theological framework where there we're looking to nature to the capital n itself provides the normative standards by which we can decide what is good and what is bad and what should be done and what should not be done. Um, that's an important kind of premise of why you even get the problem. If that's not true, if natural, if there is natural law, then then that provides the answer. So the reason why there's a problem is, is so that in order for there to be sort of a felt problem, it's got to be the case that that's not even if that or, or that might be true. But it's not obviously true. In some sense, you don't you don't begin assuming that's true.
1: Wait, wait, so you, or, you, or it could just be unavailable.
0: Yeah, or unavailable. Yeah, you might
1: you might think you know uh, you might think that there's a god. uh, You might think that there are true principles written into the fabric of the universe, but they are unavailable to us. And so, uh, so this whole enterprise is the second best.
2: That's right. And the explanatory, what you call the explanatory critique uh, or critiques, um, where if people think they're involved in some sort of natural law elaboration or some sort of highly formal deductive system. Um, and I guess those two things could be different, but in a, in a, at least historically there there 's a sense in which there was a lot of overlap i think um mm-hmm. that that if you think you 're engaged in that kind of natural law system we, we, you don't what you don 't get that 's really going on is the following right and there 's a story that follows after that that says oh what 's really going on is yeah. this sort of set of public choice phenomena. Or what's really going on is um, uh, people protecting hierarchy.
1: I didn't take that as the critique of the formalist story. I took the explanatory critiques as being critiques of the types of pragmatism.
2: Uh, I think that may be true too. Uh, I think the explanatory critique points can actually – and maybe in a sense I'm doing something not done in the paper – is to say you can actually bring those explanatory critiques to bear against every one of these positions. That, and maybe this is the sense in which Dworkin is saying, like, look, at a at a certain point, you, you have to give up on making progress uh, t- toward a certain some cer- some deeper philosophical reality.
1: Well, let me so so I took both explanatory critiques as as mm-hmm. it's interesting in, in slightly different ways, injecting human brutishness into the equation, right? right. Uh, on the public choice side, it's self interested actors acting within an economy, and and so if you want to know what institutions do within law, they do what is you – know, they, they do the aggregation of what serves the self-interest of the participants and then the, crit, um, the critical uh, legal studies uh, critique is that it, it, what institutions do is whatever um, legitimizes and, and perpetuates domination and, mm-hmm. and, and both of these are you – know, they're, they're critiques to – so I take your point, Joe. I mean they're, they're critiques of any theory that law is a search for truth in some way. Right, like, And I think historically and where Charles situates
2: them is, I think, rightly as um, attacks on the legal process consensus, right, right? which in, right. It, which does have some roots in pragmatism that Charles is very, I think, elegantly right. laying out. But uh, they're also I think the legal process uh, it, it, consensus is also very much an effort to return to some sort of natural law position without calling it that, but some sort mm-hmm. of natural law huh. position that, that sort of saves us from the, what they would think of as the brutishness of realists and because they think that That's way right. lies Nazism.
1: And the, and the critique is – right. the critique of the of – these explanatory critiques is that you don't have a, a, a legitimate – you don't have a true theory of the workings of actual human beings right this is the right. same the same way one of the critiques of Marx, for example, right is that even if he's correct I've been working with my daughter who's studying all this it's it's very interesting like even if he has a correct theory about alienation, he doesn't have a good working theory of how human beings would overcome that actual human beings overcome that right It's the same kind of idea like it's a model yeah, he he's a good economist and a terrible psychologist yeah, the model of mind is is totally is is misleading us, I don't know
2: yeah. Give us the legal process part of what – because I was doing an effort at it, but you did it much better, I think.
0: Well, no, that's right. That's exactly right. I, so I frame those those kinds of critiques, what I call the explanatory critiques, as targeting the legal process, which I try to show is itself one of the sort of iterations of this kind of pragmatist view where it's a kind of uh, a blending of fact and value. It takes the kind of wide notion of experience, and it's basically – it, 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 I mean, the critique of the legal process, right, is that it's it's so it's dependent on a kind of consensus about what was appropriate and how things should go around here. And of course, that consensus was revealed to be, you know, completely shutting out important uh, voices at the time. It was largely a kind of white male establishment uh, kind of worldview. Uh, so it was kind of conservative in that way, because it sort of took as inherently good existing practice, <laughs> basically sort of said, well, this is you know, we know this is good, so then we'll take it from there. And that's the criticism of it, is that, is that it's too conservative and, and complacent. But what I try to show is that there was a sense in which it was trying to resolve this problem because it was, it was trying to develop. I mean, it was trying to uh, uh, look at existing practices, but also just looking in the, in the narrow sense of that of experience of just looking and, you know, seeing what it is that agencies do or what it is that courts are doing. That's not enough to give a, you know, a, a guide for how you ought to do things. That, that's the sort of fact value gap. And what, what I suggest that they were doing was they thought you would have certain intuitions about what was working and what was not working. What would they, they loved the word workable and, and sound. That was always the word they loved to talk about, sound, sound decision makings. Well that notion of soundness was kind of both empirical about what works as a practical matter and what seems fair, right, just, and appropriate in some kind of inarticulate, intuitive sense and that was the whole point of the course that they were teaching i mean the legal process <laughs> right. materials is is was it for a second year class at harvard law school and what i think they were trying to do was basically inculcate these intuitions in a generation in generations of lawyers and i think they did so successfully
1: but what you just point out is that is that, that it, it it was a it was a welding together of some empirical verification with some solving words exactly and so so it doesn't the question is is, is that progress
2: before we get to the answer <laughs> yeah. uh, what i think that's, is most surprising about what you what you're describing is but by, by 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 saying that the legal process uh consensus and that and that course and all that but by by calling it pragmatic or pragmatist i think in a way that's the most surprising thing about your paper to me sitting here now that that mm-hmm. because i think i think they mm. Yeah. They, they might not have wanted to call themselves natural law people, or at least Henry Hart might not have wanted to call them that. But I think Fuller would have been okay yeah. with
0: it, right? Yeah, um, I mean, he, because of course he endorsed that kind of natural law, but his own sort of odd, uh, idiosyncratic—well, one very uh, focused on pro- version of-
2: exactly one very focused on process, one right, very exactly. focused on procedure. That that the tr- the the sort of the true principles. Turn out to be procedural, yeah, not substantive. It, so we can be pluralist on substance and the way that we can do that without all clubbing each other to death over the, the head is by being, by being pristine uh, and about procedure.
1: It's interesting because in Fuller – like you can slice this in several different ways, cause it, the substantive procedural divide because you know, his, his great work, right, refers to particular moral duties that a ruler has to his or mm-hmm. her people. Right. And mm-hmm. and and these are all procedural. Right. But in a way, they are like substantive duties in the sense that we've been talking about it, because there's another way that there's kind of a virtue. Virtue ethics is the best way of talking about like how. Y- yes, you have to do these minimal things as a ruler. Right. Within a legal right. institution. But also there's a certain ethic of how you should decide things, which. Are, are, you know, once you've cleared that low, very low procedural hurdle, there's a certain sense of how we should do things around here. And that harkens back, I <laughs> think, to, her yeah, or, or, or even like when we're deciding questions of procedure, like, you know, what is what's an appropriate way for me to think? And all of this is about how one should go about uh, doing this. It, it harkens back to uh, Jerome Frank, whom you mentioned in the paper, right, mm-hmm. who has a very virtue ethics driven understanding, I think. I mean, I, it, yeah. it seems like it to me. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, yeah, I wrote a paper where it's basically saying exactly that. Yeah. Uh, there's so many different threads here i'm trying yeah. to f- figure out which one to pick up i mean so what you were talking about fuller just for those who aren't familiar with fuller is that what he's most famous for is developing his kind of you know eight canons of i don't think he calls them canons actually um actually i think the, the way he describes it in the book is eight ways that laws can fail uh and it's basically what now we think of the traditional uh rule of law ideas like that if a ruler wants to be effective Um, that that the rules must be – they must be rules. First of all, they must be general. They must be public, uh, clear, non-contradictory, not too out of whack with how they're actually administered and practiced. And so these are all kinds of virtues of law as law in a sense.
1: Capable of being followed. And and I I would think he wouldn't think – it's not just about efficacy, although he he tells a story about like how could – this, this right. society would collapse if Rex did it this way. Right. But right. but really what it you know, in, in the negative, it, it charts out it, which he calls, you know, principles of the inner morality of law. They are moral duties owed by the ruler to the ruled. Like well, that, that's right. Yeah. And the
0: question is why that is. And the criticism he got is from Hart and Dworkin and others was, well, no, what you're talking about is just a kind of efficiency. These are just a, what make law more effective. It doesn't. It doesn't make law at all good. You could be having, you could satisfy all of these rules and still have a completely, you know, horrendous, evil regime. But although, although I think we he you might say uh, in the
2: spirit of his of his project that um, the the sense in which that's incorrect, and it might ultimately be another attempt to sort of valorize procedure, right? Is to say, w- look, the ulti- really the ultimate behind all of that is. The notion of reciprocity the the, yeah. the the sense in which the ruler and the ruled ultimately have to be uh, on an equal footing at some deep level of being, and in that context you could say, well, all of this could lead to evil well no, it couldn 't because in that evil scenario there, that reciprocity would be utterly lacking right there, there wouldn 't be um, the governor and the governed wouldn't be treated in that in that ultimately same fashion
1: so while it's more symmetrical than the asymmetrical example of the ruler and the ruled you might ask about the ethics that uh, married spouses owe to one another and if you specified these only in quote unquote procedural terms like they should be honest they should disclose readily they should be quick to forgive you know these kinds of things which don't go to what particular kinds of projects they should have with one another. Right. Then you may say, well, if you don't specify what kind of projects, what's to say that one of them won't choose things, which, you know, only advantage the one spouse or, uh, lead to the detriment of the other spouse. Right. And then the Falerian type exam, uh, response to that would be that if they get this basic, these basic kind of communicative ethics straight, it's very unlikely they could veer. So, uh, exactly. so, so far off course. And that's
0: exactly right. He thought, he thought, and it's, a, it's what's interesting about it, and I think it's interesting because it's a kind of sociological, empirical sort of claim that may have something to it. I think it's kind of intriguing, but it's not obviously true, certainly, which is right, that, at, that basically governments that, would, that comply with rule of law demands will feel a kind of pressure to do substantively good things. I would have
2: thought that, that a very, a, a very um, congenial place to put the legal process consensus was in sort of the unnatural law
1: frame. It's or so una- weird. Yeah. You keep saying, I, yeah, expand well, on that because I, my, I, I have the opposite instinct. Uh, uh,
2: and Charles clearly does too yeah. in the sense that this paper puts it in the pragmatist
0: frame. Yeah. Um, although although, although, as between, I mean, I'm with you, Joe, in the, and, and you know my earlier paper on the, that was all about the legal process. The, there I am kind of trying to suggest that they're certainly not, well, I, they're, they're certainly not traditional positivists in the heart sense right um, although similar i mean what i basically suggest is that it's a kind of i don't know if natural law is the right word but it's a kind of values driven positivism right it's all what they stipulate as their sort of the central idea of of um of law basically is this what they call the um the principle of institutional settlement or that laws duly enacted should be duly followed until they are duly changed or something like that i'm not getting that exactly right um so it's all about a kind of commitment to abiding by the rule of law, but that itself is a is requires a kind of substantive moral justification. In in that way, I do think they're on the in the kind of narrow positivism versus anti positivism. They're on the anti positivism side, I think.
2: Yeah, and and of course they're I mean these they're far too um, they're far too smart and and knowledgeable about legal realism. And the way that it sort of we, we we've all been expelled from uh from the garden, whether you think it's yes. the garden of Eden or the garden of something else, we've all been expelled, right? So the right. the sort of formalism garden, you can't get back there, uh, and right. it would be foolish to try. Uh, so if you're but if you're going to try to save legal realism or or save the world from what you think the depredations of of tr- of full a thoroughgoing realism might be, um. I think you do have to, or at least they seem to think, you have to find some some rock uh, to get back to on which to build the thing you're going to do next. And that rock is, as you just said, this principle of a process-based settlement uh, that we can all live with, right? It, Even when we disagree about the particular that's right. accommodations we might reach on any given issue on any given day. Um, right. There is this rudimentary, fundamental, foundational thing that we are all bought into
1: and its process. It's, it's interesting because, um, so, I mean, so much of this, especially this, um, the earlier writers that Charles surveys are, are mainly concerned with, I think, uh, kind of common law reasoning in common law domains, right? Mm-hmm. And, and the, the effort is to get away from the notion that there is a kind of a sacred priesthood who have right. answers, right? And our job is just to kind of perpetuate the correct notions of the sacred priesthood, right? And and instead, you know, make it, you know, in, in almost like a Reformation-style way, like make available to the masses an understanding of how this process works. And, mm. But there's also, uh, you know, I think with the rise of originalism, there's there's a turn toward sacred texts, right? Yes. Rather than the sacred priesthood. And, and with sacred texts, like the idea is like, for what reason do we follow the sacred text and the, and interpret it in particular ways. But, but similarly here, there's a move towards kind of getting away from that. And, you know, the, the texts themselves are open to interpretation and they don't constrain it, you know, the, but, right. um, but, but here too, maybe the best explanation, you know, my favored justification for originalism, even though I'm not an originalist, the, the, the answers I like best about why one might consider being an originalist have to do with this kind of virtue ethics idea right that it is a it is a way of binding oneself to the common project that you agree to be bound you know you agree you agree to constrain yourself in a particular way and that's a particular kind of institutional ethic that you take when you participate in a process of, an, 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 of joining an interpretive community um, mm-hmm. and that, that has nothing to do with the actual sacredness of the text right just no i
0: think that's right that's about the role
1: right and so we can right. all give up on the actual sacredness of the text and yet still debate Originalism in the same way that so this is I'm kind of pushing back a little bit against the being expelled from the Garden of Eden idea a little bit because we might also say that um, uh, we give up on the idea of the sacredness of the original priesthood right the one the origi- like that there are some of these you know er ur- principles of the common law that um, that that were accessible only to that priesthood we can say well, they're accessible to everyone but there are some basic principles about how you yes. evolve this that that as a matter of ethic you should accept
0: yeah I think that's right. And so I mean, we, one of the things that the, the process, the legal process folks were, you know, emphasized a lot was institutional uh, notions of institutional competency and legitimacy and the idea that certain, you know, that that's the that's what it's all about in a sense. The yeah. whole thing. It's all about just the, the, pr- the proper kinds of questions. Uh, it's always the, about trying to figure out what kinds of who should be deciding what kinds of questions. And by what criteria and how, um, and that's where you see a link to kind of Dworkin and that notion of principle decision making. Because for, in their view, what judges should do, judges are constrained by principles in some way. Right. Um, so then I sort of see the legal process as as the kind of as the roots of sort of two of the of the of the three strands of um, of pragmatism. Um, one thing that I'd be curious for, to get your I don't want to divert us here, but it's related. I mean, one thing I'd be curious for your all's take on is, it seems to me these days, I mean, I've been interested in the legal process for a while, uh, as Joe knows, because he knows my little paper. Uh, but I, but particularly recently, I mean, in light of Trump in the last year and a half, I, the, the, the question I keep on thinking about is just that, you know, with all this, now you just see on the left so much of, you know, the importance of norms and practices and, <laughs> and the freaking out when Trump breaches them. I mean, that's all basic kind of legal process ideas. You know, I mean, it sort of seems like people are kind of coming around a little bit to appreciating the the kind of importance of just having a settled way that we do things around here and that it's not perfect.
2: I think that part of it, uh, uh, I I'd wonder, too, though, if um, there isn't also uh, I'll speak personally that that it's it's sort of um, that, yes, one can be shocked by the. Uh, the the way in which um, he and some people around him don't appear to care about uh, sort of uh, routine ways of doing things or familiar ways of doing things. Um, but in addition, one can also then think, well, OK, so what that really opens up, given that that he is ignoring them and is still managing to accomplish a variety of things to some degree or other, um there's this sense in which i feel like um hmm. so i need to unwind this and, and and say so one thing i wonder when i when i think about pragmatism and the three varieties of legal pragmatism that you lay out this is it um the, instrum-
1: hmm? the instrumentalist the quietist right, and the, the holist exactly those yeah.
2: three different ways of thinking about it and the and the way they differ on on uh how much of experience you take into account and then right. and how much you uh, are alive to the possibility that you're going to be revising in both directions, both your understanding of the facts and your understanding of the the sort of um, the values questions. Um, at the end of the day, it, does it give you enough resources yeah. within law to confront um, a a figure who who seems to come from outside law and mm-hmm. say? more than any other single thing, you know, Hulk
1: smash. The legal asteroid. Yeah. Remember our episode? We called that legal asteroid. Yeah. Right? We,
2: yeah. Because I feel like that's what, that's my, when I'm most disquieted in the last year and a half, it's been in those moments where I feel like the, the, the question that seems most pressing to me is, does law have enough resources within itself what? to confront and cope with Hulk smash? Yeah. Um because that because if the answer is no then I For feel sure. like the next things I need to do are much different than if the
1: answer is yes. Is that the right way of look at does law have not. resources? I mean because I think you're referring to the fact that in our society a legal argument even if one disagrees with it which is ultimately accepted by authorities is generally followed, right? And and that's a that itself is a norm. We can go back to HLA Hart about yep. that's yep. a social yep. rule. But, but, right. um, but that, that there is this like ethic of resolution of problems, some of which are, are sanctioned through explicit law and some of which are um, s- some authority sanctioned through something less than explicit law, but legal type norms. Right. And, and, and in other words, that's kind of our like social theory of correctness. Like the answer on the legal side to the what should we do question like or what is okay for us to do is answered through this very kind of legalistic procedure, right? Which says, well, you can do this, you can do that. But if law says you can't do this, then you can't, right? And we have particular ways of answering those kinds of questions. right? Um, so it's it's less about does law have internally a resource to deal with the Trump, but clearly it does. The, I mean, the guy is impeachable for any number of things already, right? Um, yeah. Emoluments, uh, you know, right. and, and who knows what this, what the, uh, what's going to be uncovered, obstruction already. So, and, and that that thing,
2: impeachment, is itself a construct set forth in a legal document. We've got some practices. We've done it in the past in various right. ways, there are procedures, et cetera.
1: Right. But it seems to me the question is not about whether it has the resources, it's, is it powerful enough, right? Is a commitment to the rule of law idea powerful yeah. enough to withstand an extra-legal critique of society? And there are, you know, there are, well, yeah. yeah, so we should talk to Joe and I sometime or about this. Where like, it, yeah.
2: it's, it's we're, You know, we're, we're getting to the, like, this sort of,
1: there's law and power, and where is the boundary, and et cetera. Well, and, and to be clear, like, I'm, I'm sympathetic to the idea that law is just another form of power. Right. It's
0: yeah.
1: And, and it could be there are plenty of legalistic systems to which I would be wholly opposed and would become a saboteur or revolutionary or something else just because they're they're evil. This is I throw my lot in with with heart to say, for example, that the Nazi legal system was, in fact, a legal system, but it's one which should be resisted with every, you know, every right. fiber of one's body. Um, so so uh, the, the question is our legal system as it's constituted. Our yeah. system, and, and, and maybe extending beyond the purely legal to these extra legal norms, which nonetheless were deemed to be authoritative in some way. Um, right. Like, can they withstand a rival claim of power? And, and I don't think that these are like – that makes it sound like more of a discrete battle than it is, whereas right. you know, a, a real society is like, you know, what is our law is a question which is always evolving. There are always like rival claims to what our law right. really is. Right. And, and Trump's claim is that, you know, is, is very – Well, authoritarian
2: and a canny and especially canny rival um, will, of course, try to use the language of law.
1: Right. To make its claim, usually restorationist type language, right? That the real law has been usurped by this bad group or that bad group or by this bad set of facts. And it's revanchism
2: of one form or another. But yeah, yeah, and again, that's a much cannier register within which to try to make your rival claim. Um, And maybe that's the sense in which it feels like it's more about a question of internal resources than the way you've described it.
1: Um, But see, I I just don't think you fend off uh, the the legal asteroid with internal resources, right? I think you defend defend the system of norms as a whole as basically good, at least in comparison with Trump's ideal. It also gives you an opportunity to say, hey – there are valid critiques of this system of norms. So you right?
2: have to be able to say well, – it mm-hmm. sounds, Christian, like from what you've just said, you have to be able to identify an inside and an outside.
1: Yeah, even though Charles has yeah. previously yeah. told That's us not to do this.
2: To <laughs> right. Well, this is exactly – and I'm trying to – this is my way to get Charles back in on center stage here to say, so, so is pragmatism a way to get at an inside and an outside? And, and, and you also – I know, Charles, are skeptical of that, of that very predication. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's what I view as the quietest approach. I mean, one way of thinking about it in a kind of crude way is the the, the
1: notion of uh, – By the um, way, Charles, that's the only way that I ever think of these things. so uh, <laughs> so, so crude thank, th- Yeah, thanks, yeah. For, thanks uh, for doing that.
0: Well, it's like I – mean, this is the thing I keep on – okay, so thinking in less sort of loaded philosophical terms, just when we think of a pragmatic in the more common sense – way. We think of law as, and that's one reason why legal pragmatism is so, such a thrown around word is because it seems like law is kind of inherently pragmatic in the sense that it's, you know, as people always are loved to point out, you know, it's, it's not about truth. It's about resolving disputes. You know, it's, there's something very much just kind of like, look, this is where, uh, it's just a, it's a practical business. Um, and so Oh, none of these uh, highfalutin ideas about what the world is like and how we know value, and none of that stuff matters. Um, it's just, um, uh, or, or what explains it, it, uh, it we just got to make the decision in front of us. Um, and in another, but a sort of a different version of it is. No, it's because you have to constantly make decisions, you have to make, you have to basically render in it's sort of the existentialist interpretation of it almost. Insofar as you are making a decision, you are making judgments about what is important and true in the world. And you are constantly having to basically adjudicate large questions. Uh, and I think that is, it's that sort of difference in a way is the difference that I'm sort of interested in. And I'm sort of more partial to the latter. I mean, one, one, okay, so one way of getting, and this is a sort of slight diversion, but it's a different question. I mean, you just said, right, there are valid critiques of those norms. One of the things that I keep on thinking about, and partly because of a class I taught this past year, but is, you know, just thinking of the question of what do we make of CL, you know, not just CLS, but critical legal studies, uh, critical race uh, theory and gender theory and all that, what do we make of those critiques of um, the legal process in light of Trump? What do we? How, how should we? As we be looking back now, thirty years or whatever it was that, that was all going on, you know, what do we make of it? Because clearly they made some, they made some important, really important, valid critiques that, in part, like made the cons kind of consensus to some degree go away. But now all of a sudden, it's sort of like, well, but we want to salvage some of it, but not all of it. It's, so it's interesting
1: because, you know, it, the the common critique of CLS is that it's ultimately nihilist, which is actually not a critique. <laughs> In a way, right? right? I mean, it's just—it's just a label. But I think that um, it's not wrong to point out that a system, which is a a, a kind of compound system of justification of authority, that after decades fails to deliver, um, fails to deliver happiness uh, when that is its claimed goal, is susceptible to an external attack. Um, right. and, and, and that's, you know, I think widening income inequality, the sense of, uh, lack of shared prosperity, all of these things are, are vulnerabilities for a system, uh, and a vulnerability of ours. Yeah. Uh,
2: but so I, this is sort of a, like, uh, caricaturing, um, that, that consensus as a sort of the handmaiden of neoliberalism of the, of yeah. the sort of worst kind, right.
1: right? Yeah. Let, let me take it to, a uh, Joe, as you know, like I've written elsewhere about how. Families are legal systems. Legal systems are everywhere. There's, you know, systems of rules of, that yeah. govern kind of cooperative systems, right? That law just is the conceptual side of any cooperation. And but but we can, you know, whether you think of that's true or you think of it just as an analogy, we can also think of a family again yeah. where one of the spouses is being uh, is considering being uh, considering infidelity. Right. And there's a there's a third person, a Trump. Right. <laughs> Uh, this yeah. is this is actually a great analogy the more I think about it uh, <laughs> uh, but um where like like the the kinds of arguments to the person internal to the marriage who's considering um uh considering cheating considering going outside the marriage right have to, they can be external and internal like they, they can be like the follow your muse like this isn't the life that you want, et cetera they can also be internal critiques that you know your spouse has promised you these things but Look, he or she has been uh, has committed an infidelity before, or they're not really interested in what you're. You you know, you had promised each other to support each other, but look how they're not supporting you, right? I mean, here I'm. It sounds like I'm denying agency to the spouse who's choosing whether or not to cheat. I don't mean to do that. I'm just talking in terms of like uh, what could disrupt a kind of system of norms within a marriage, right? Uh, There is, you know, marriages can fall apart from within. Right. Where the, the system right. of there's enough kind of norm breakage and, and 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 there wasn't a thick enough agreement on a system of norms within the marriage really to make it work and resolve important disputes and questions in the future. Right. So that there is a sense in which that there can be that kind of internal hemorrhage, but there also can be external threats and those external threats can pitch break up in terms of these kinds of um, uh, external critiques and internal critiques and a marriage which has these internal hemorrhages is maybe more prone to an external attack. I, I, I'm not sure how to connect this with your three yeah. theories of pragmatism, I can. But okay, yeah, that's. I was looking at you because I thought that you <laughs> might, but I, I don't have my glasses on, so I can't for sure tell whether Joe <laughs> is looking with like boredom or amusement or right. so. Here's interest so we're
2: we're talking a few, in a few different ways. What we've been talking about, I I would say, is rupture and continuity, and yeah. and what sorts of approaches are better at hand. This my gloss on it would be. And one question is: What sorts of systems or approaches are better at dealing with ruptures and better at dealing with continuities? And the figure of Justice Souter, who who enters the scene late yeah. in the paper as an as a, an exemplar of holism, which is the third of your varieties of pragmatism, yeah. um, is so. It's interesting because the two the two uh, opinions of his that you you focus on in this conversation. Um, one, he's advocating in dissent the the overruling of or rejection of a, of a prior case. It yeah. happens to be Hans against Louisiana, um, yeah. and in another, his joining the the uh, the troika in Planned Parenthood against Casey is about adhering to a prior case. In that right. instance, uh, Roe. Um, so it's it's interesting that you've got the whole list. Justice Souter, as a figure who is trying to navigate when to overturn and when to adhere to a prior case, and that is that is exactly the question about
1: rupture and continuity. And, and in answering this or, or continuing, yeah. can we say what the holist position is? I found this the most difficult part of the paper.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. it's the most. Yeah. It's, it's the most. It's the least sort of uh, clear. Although it's really what, like what I mean. This is if you, you, the, the the Souter paper that I wrote last year was Which was um, the last time we talked to you I think yeah yes it was, it was, it was the same I mean there's the same it, it, it's the same basic sort of typology in a way there I framed it as sort of theories of the common law, but it's essentially the same the same thing, the same three differences the The way I describe the differences between the three are are this um, the instrumentalist is the easiest to understand because that is um it's kind of it's kind of consistent with standard social science models of of, of decision making, uh, where you have certain goals or desires and you form beliefs about what the best way to reach and attain those goals is. So it's sort of straightforward, kind of consistent with rational choice theory, that kind of thing.
1: And, and you confirm or reject those beliefs based on sensory experiences exactly, plus.
0: Exactly. So that only requires the narrow sense of experience of just look, looking to see whether, you know, yeah, it has worked, it has achieved those goals as measurable in some kind of a quote, objective, sort of verifiable through sense experience kind of way. Um, and that is, uh, and those that doesn't have to be a cynical take on right. I mean, the goals themselves it could be whatever, right? It could be important moral just ends, or it could be self-interest. But the point is, instead of the structure of reasoning is, is that, and that's basically taking that's basically seeing the the motivation for that. And this is what I ascribe to. Posner is a a, a, a sort of thinking of human beings as. You know, essentially rational animals that were that that developed through evolution. Reasoning is all about coping an environment and trying to control our environment to survive. Essentially,
2: you describe an instrumentalist, and you yeah. des- and the, and the quietist. It wants to take the wider range of experience. Yes, exactly. So your distinction in the paper between the narrow and the wide view of experience. The way the right. the way the instrumentalist and the quietist differ from one another. That's right. Is that the quietist is saying, no, let's take the wider range of experiences, but I'm going to remain a, a naturalistic person because I'm not going to get sucked out into a bunch of metaphysical
0: exactly.
1: gobbledygook, right? Which makes the quietist pragmatist rather than something else.
0: Exactly, right. exactly. So there's a kind of looking at the forward, looking at the consequences, not worried about the past kind of thing that has, a, I think, some roots in process theory and pragmatism generally.
2: No, I think the instrumentalist can say to the quietist, you know, Look, uh, to a first order approximation, what I do is going to be the bulk of what you do that's useful, right? So the, the instrumentalist yeah. can turn to the quietist and say, you can say you want to take a wider range of experience, but when you do that, you, you, you either wind up doing what I do, but taking a lot longer to get there, or yeah. you wind up fuzzying the picture in a way that's unhelpful. And, and, and so just do what I do, right? This is sort of the, the law and econ take on a lot of behavioral economics is, yeah, that all sounds interesting, but, but my stuff, which doesn't do the behavioral stuff uh, is to a first order of approximation, largely what you're saying in the end. Can I way.
1: interject really quickly? Because yeah. I think here, again, if we look at the family's legal system, it's kind of helpful. I mean, maybe you're tired. Of, I can't tell from your eyes whether you're tired of hearing me interject with this particular example, <laughs> Joe. Um, but but you can imagine, right, that, that different legal systems might – different modes of reasoning might appeal to them, right, for, for – Depending on the normative project, and and so in a family, you could see like the instrument, like deciding whether to move across the country or deciding whether to do something else in order to pursue a different kind of project together. Right? It it involves. It's a joint question. It's it. It's not exactly existential, but it's it's an important question to resolve. And you can imagine doing that purely in in kind of cost benefit terms, or like how is what are the consequences of this going to be? But you can easily see a couple saying to each all those things are important. They could say to one another, but. Also, this is a question of what kind of people we want to be. What, what was our what, – what was this project? Like what – you know, why are we together? What is – what are we trying to do together? Which ultimately maybe comes down to what kind of people they want to be, right? Right. And mm-hmm. that seems to be more of the Dworkinian reference to principles which are not exactly fact-based, right? Where, where they really right. do seem distinct as values right. uh, from fact. Um, and that's I'm not right. sure that the instrumentalists could take account of what's going on in a marriage when they consider those kinds of questions.
0: I think that's exactly right. I mean what I was going to say to, to Joe's uh, description of it is just that I think there's a different maybe version of what you're saying, which is that I would put it slightly uh, starker. I mean the instrumentalist would say to the uh, – to Dworkin and the, what I'm calling the quietist approach, which emphasizes these moral principles, it's, it's B.S., I mean, they, they don't exist. I mean, the, 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 the talk of fairness and equality are words that are so vague and general that they don't really map on in any clear, reliable way to things in the actual world. And and the quietest replies, like, look, it's not BS. I'm telling you, it's as
2: real to me as anything else is real to me. That we have to have this conversation about what kind of people we want to be. And you can, in your in in your instrumentalist and oddly imperialist way, keep insisting yes. that you can reduce everything I say to what you say, but it just isn't so,
1: right? I mean, and, and it just it, that feels like a more compelling argument in a municipal legal system that is um, heterogeneous because of the amount of heterodoxy, right? Like the more heterodoxy, the more the, a word like equality seems to be a contested principle and therefore to be devoid of specific content. Mm. Whereas in the marriage, like that's why I keep bringing it up, right? It's like the two people really do feel like they're talking about something when they talk about being good people together, right? Because there's right. less heterodoxy. I don't know. Yeah, it, it's, yeah. it no, feels I'm more shared. More the the
2: yeah. quietism feels more shared. So why, yeah. why is the label of this quietism and not, and not something more like animism?
0: Yeah, yeah, okay, so that's the important thing, is that for, for, so, so the, the, the debate between Dworkin and, and the instrumentalist, or the quietest instrumentalist, is about the, is about the importance of these principles. The instrumentalist who just sees that sees it as kind of a vague language, that doesn't refer to anything concretely in the world, because it takes the narrower understanding of experience, right? It wants things that are really verifiable and real, not just woolly and metaphysical sounding, or actually metaphysical is the wrong word for the reason that I'll say it, so let's say moral sounding, moral maxims and so forth. Um, the 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 way that, the reason why the quietist is the quietest is because of how it responds to skepticism about that. Someone like the instrumentalist could say, "Look, those things don't exist in the world. We're just all animals. We have impulses and desires of different sorts, uh, and you can dress up your desire as with used language, but that's just you. Um, you know, this is in some ways the CLS critique of this kind of language. it's, it's this is just ideology. This is just it's just your." You know, making stuff up to satisfy what is ultimately basically a um a, 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 you know some kind of more brute desire that we could you know there could be a range possibly of how skeptical it are or what you think those desires are right what what kind of domination you think is going on or maybe it's not even domination at all of any particular class or group, but it's just kind of your idiosyncratic preferences of some way, but the point is it's it's undermined it doesn't have the status of something that is Appropriate for judicial decision making that governs the whole community and what makes the work in the quietest is how it responds to that kind of objection by saying essentially I don't care or 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 that's the wrong kind of argument I don't no kind of argument about the nature of my, you've got basically you've got to meet my moral claims with moral claims you can't undermine my claims by explaining them away. I mean, this is a big issue in moral philosophy and metaethics right now, where people argue, a lot of it gets argued about evolution, whether, you know, what they call evolutionary debunking arguments. Can you undermine a certain kind of moral form of moral reasoning by saying no, uh, by looking to our evolutionary roots and explaining it? Oh, the only reason why we have these kinds of impulses is because of X, Y, or Z, you know, thousands and millions of years ago. So it's an
2: anti-reductive move. You, you say you can't reduce what I'm talking about to your own, to, to that other frame that you keep wanting to put things in. um,
1: it, it, Yeah,
0: that's right. I mean,
1: uh, I would say it translates it right from a, yeah, tr- from yeah. a truth claim. Uh, like, okay, so you've made your argument and, and, and your argument basically comes down to I that, that I'm not making an ultimate truth claim. Nonetheless, I'm speaking of something that is true for our community, for whatever reason, it might be true under a different kind of epistemological system and your objection has no purchase there, right? And another, that's right. I, I think that's right, I, I don't know, I mean.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so one way of thinking about it, so back to your fact value question, Joe, a while ago, I mean, so another way of putting it, again, in very crude terms is that Dworkin is all about, and the quietest is all about value, as he calls it about it, it's an independent domain of value. And when we're in that domain, um, nothing you tell me about facts matters. It just doesn't matter. You can't. You know, It's it's not. You can tell me a story about how I came to believe what I did, and I only think this because you know whatever it is, whether it's a Marxist story, whether it's some kind of um, you know uh, story about race or gender or anything, or or economic, right, or or just kind of rational choice kind of thing. Nothing you tell me of that is gonna is. is I'm immune from those kinds of arguments. The only kind of argument that matters, you got. At the end of the day, you got to make an immoral argument, and you got to fight my. You got to basically fight on my terrain.
1: But but that seems to be the nub of it, right? That the the claim is that the origins of the domain say nothing about the exactly. proper mechanics within the domain. Exactly. Now, is the that kind of ultimately?
2: Is that ultimately? Well, maybe, and and maybe I'm about to make that fallacy when I say is sort of. Is the reason why that isn't um just declaring that you don't want to play the game and going home that that you could say, well, look, that the moral reality, the moral domain that I'm trying to talk about is as real to me, again, experientially, you the instrumentalist, you keep saying we need to look to experience and you would need to look to sensory experience. And what I'm telling you is. Uh, the, the the moral domain is as experientially real to me as the sensory domain so it doesn't make any sense to me the
0: quietist, yeah. to ignore it yeah and then and then when, when asked for a kind of story about how it is that those things are actually real things in the world the matter and not just dressed up ideology or your preferences or whatever subjective will uh it says I don't have to, you know, it's sort of essentially I don't have to go there. And that's what makes it quietist. Quietist is used often in, in, um, in philosophy to sort of uh, uh, usually it's about metaphysics. It's it's a, a kind of re- refusal to engage in metaphysical debate. Um, and so I think that's true in this case, but I'm sort of using using it even broader. Of, and that's why I associate it with people who take the kind of, quote, internal point of view and the internal external thing. It's I don't I don't care about those kinds of questions. Nothing can can diffuse what I'm doing. This is this is my project. This is these are my values. And 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 I don't need to listen to uh, stories that would somehow undermine them by saying that what is really going on is something more sinister.
1: I don't want to get us too off track as we get closer to the to the end of the conversation. So forgive me. But again, this seems to be like the strength of this critique and, and the way that you translate. It seems to depend to me a lot on the nature of the system that you're examining. So. So, a system in which value debates are happening among elite representatives, like like judges, mm-hmm. and there's kind of an internal mechanics of those value debates. Um, you know, uh, a certain notion of maybe there, maybe there are two prevailing notions of what equality means, and and, mm-hmm. and, the, and the elites are going back and forth about what those are. So, a project of the instrumentalist might be to show that in fact there is a whole range, there's a whole spectrum of things that equality could mean and this debate going on in the domain of value is in fact false that that there that there's a lot more That's right. uh, you know there there are far more uh, far more uh, there are a lot uh, far more positions that one could take than are represented within elite discourse whereas it you know again to going back to the to the married couple to, to trying to decide whether to uh, whether to move or engage in some big life change where uh, part of their discussion goes back to what kind of people do we want to be together it would seem weird to tell them that they're doing it wrong from the outside, right? That that yes, yeah. you're, you're talking about what kind of people you want to be, but actually that makes no sense, and 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 you could yeah. totally you could cash this out completely in terms of costs and benefits, uh, and your history together, and this this values debate you're having is really false. It doesn't feel that way to them. I, I get that. It also doesn't feel that way to judges who are arguing about what equality means. It doesn't feel as though they are obfuscating. Maybe. Um, but well, but it, more than that it's it's it seems odd to tell the married couple that they're doing it wrong.
0: Yes, but I think that's I think there's a lot that that, that seems right I think. And this does get to the kind of internal external question. But I think that's a little bit stacks the deck is that or loads the I was going to say loads the deck stacks <laughs> the dice. Um, in because it's such an intimate tight thing with only two people. I mean all you do is broaden it slightly and you think of a um you know some kind of community some kind of club or something with a few people. And someone who's a member of the club says, yeah. I think this is all BS. I think we've been pointing completely in the wrong direction and that this has all been a, a sideshow and that what we should really be doing is why. And mm-hmm. then it's someone inside the club says, no, 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 you don't understand. You're taking the wrong point of view on this.
1: Yeah. <laughs> no, but see, this is, um, I, I will just say, look, you're holding your hand up, but I will just say because it connects with my theory. <laughs> Exactly. And I won't, and I, and I won't, I won't uh, drop an opportunity to talk about something that directly speaks to it. Like it what you're saying is that um, the kind of discourse which is, in fact, accepted and seems appropriate is completely tied to the normative commitments which define the cooperation, right? Oh, yeah. and, and, and what makes the married couple thing special is that we think that normative commitment is, is extremely thick, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so thick as to, as to seem sui generis, right? Yeah. But but in fact, I don't think it is. I think there's a spectrum. You know, there could be a group of very close friends. There could be yeah. a club committed to a certain kind of, like, well, the Sierra Club committed to environmentalism, right? Has a has a a, a broader kind of normative orientation than does, say, the Lions Club or something like that, right? Which has okay. a so, a, a, and you could get all the way to uh, just a city council governing a particular kind of city. You could go to the United States. I mean, so so the uh, the kind of normative cohesion, the thing which which the people themselves identify as their reasons for getting together in the first place, I think go into, you know, what kinds of value debates can they have that are meaningful and which ones are in fact just subterfuge for something else, trying to win a values debate which doesn't – hasn't been decided yet. And Sorry, to, Joe. Yeah.
2: To decohere the family uh, hypo a little bit, you know, add two 13-year-olds. Um, <laughs> Where where the dis- debate please, is? Please don't. I've been there, done that. <laughs> right. Exactly. No. Exactly. Right. Were you saying, okay, are we going to move across the country? Which was your original sort of the the question they were considering uh, yeah. as a family project, right? So, um, the 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 married the t- the married dyad versus the married dyad and their two kids who were in the middle of identity formation at, at
1: that age, right? Not that I've had kids, but. Um my brother and his wife are in fact going to move across the country and this has nothing I I I swear this has nothing to do with that. <laughs>
2: um, <laughs> that that in that context um you know when you, your observation that it would sound weird to say from the outside you're doing it wrong right right when it, you you would only need to decohere it that little bit for the for it to be an instance where you could imagine someone saying a friend saying to this family engaged in these pitched battles every day, um, maybe you guys could use a therapist or maybe you guys could use some counseling that to get a a perspective from outside the group that could help the group appreciate better the range of possibilities within which they could have a, a more fruitful version of the conversation about what to do next. Right. Maybe it's a pastor. Maybe it's just this other friend they have who's just very good at helping people hear each other better and <laughs> you reconnoiter on their on their real prospects in a friendly and fruitful way. Um, Is there th- someone who can do this at a national level, Joe? That- <laughs> <laughs> um, but the, the whole point about, you know, you're doing it wrong. Um, I guess I'm just I'll agree with Charles that you don't need to get a much bigger than the two people. For that to be a perfectly sensible observation to make
1: about something, yeah, okay, I'm not going to belabor it further, but like, right, uh, absolutely but about domain, some debate. The point debate is that, is that the domain having. of the the domain of non-subterfuge value discussion, right, which people within the community think is valuable, uh, even if they disagree. I think depend. All I'm saying is that depends on the normative purposes of the cooperation. Yes, in the in the first yeah. instance. Right. And and yeah. and that can scale from, you know, from a family to a homeowner's association to a PTA to a Lions Club to a country. And the, and and the you're doing it wrong critique has, you know, the, the things to the, the values, debates to which that could apply depend on, you know, the circumstances that have arisen and those normative purposes. That was a, that was my point.
2: Uh, and I think that it would be interesting to um because I don't think, Charles, in this paper that you um, try to answer a question like, what is the, uh, what is the common project that is big enough uh, that it would include all of these people having a productive conversation right. with each other and not calling yeah. BS, right? Um, you didn't try to do that and, uh. because you're not Christian. Um, Christian, <laughs> Christian might want to thank wanna, God for Charles. All right, Christian might want to situate what you say in this paper in that other. And look,
1: I don't want to be. Uh, look, I get it. I'm the annoying guy who's it's, reading a paper and annoying. saying, "Why aren't you me?" Right? You know, that's the. No, it, it's, it's, it's so, so stereotypical. So I apologize for that, Charles. No, no, Nonetheless, no, no. I, I did. That's not so, what I, I meant. I know. I know. But can we get to the holist point though? Because I don't think we've actually defined oh. holism. Oh yeah. Okay. So then the
0: yeah because that's is where the, we're going next. Okay. So then the holist is the. Um, third one, and whereas the quiet, so the third one, so uh, the, the whole list also takes the wide understanding experience in the sense that they're, um, uh, you know, alive to kind of moral intuitions and will uh, think that experience can really give, be, be a genuine normative guide, not just uh, brute sensory experience. Um, but what's interesting about the whole list is that it's, r- the sort of picture they develop is kind of radically holist in the sense that, uh, Dorkin describes his view as holist, but it's holistic within the value domain. the the whole uh, The that I'm talking about is across facts and values. Uh, so this gets back to like the Morton White stuff from the last paper. It's basically the idea that that uh, we can revise our moral intuitions allow us to revise our mm. metaphysical and descriptive judgments of things. Another way of putting it is how. Uh, Unlike Dworkin, who ignores—and this is more, more particularly in the context of law—and the and, and the examples I used, it's better to think about it in this way, which is um, uh, facts as a kind of explanation, right? So if, if what Dworkin says to those kind of critiques that purport to undermine it by showing what's really going on, I don't care. I'm immune to that kind of argument because it's the wrong sort of argument. You have to meet a moral argument with a moral argument. The holist takes those seriously and thinks that you have to kind of form an overall world picture that takes into account both the strength of one's moral intuitions about how the commitments you have and our best understanding of the world in which we live so that's why i focus on those cases because they're uh, the two cases you mentioned joe because they're both situations in which suitor does something is interesting and very rare in the law and i've written about this before but where he kind of looks to what people call like you know sort of outside history or uh, external history and in that use of it i don't object to the um the, the uh, Sense in which looking at the kind of political circumstances in which a decision was decided as a way of undermining that decision.
1: So, would one way of of looking at so of looking at holism could it be sanctioning the following view of legal change? At one point, like no one thinks that uh, that that gay marriage is um, uh, gay marriage bans are at all legally problematic. Right. Uh, That's just you know, um, and and in fact, that criminalizing gay sex is completely okay. At one point, like pretty much uh, everyone thinks that, at least in elite circles, right? And and legal arguments to the contrary are not taken seriously. And over the years, um, various things happen, including maybe one of the more important ones is that more people come to know that they know gays, right? And uh, and the more that they realize that they know gay people, who they otherwise value, um, their view of what the world is changes, right? Their their exactly. factual understanding of the world changes. Exactly. And they, for whatever reason, and I, I think here the theory of mind complicates this whole picture, but for whatever reason, they decide that their values also change and they just have a different yeah. feeling about what, what is right. right in the world. And holism, as I understand it, would sanction an understanding yes. that our notion of equality has changed because that factual change has led to a values change. And these two are... are Related In that way right that that we now believe that this notion of equality includes as a group of equals gay people who we now see as an equally worthy group because of factual changes in the world. We were it's not that we were necessarily it's not that I now have a moral argument which I didn't have before which I now realize is better. And it's not that I've done a cost-benefit calculation, which I now realize is is uh, you know better than the one that went before, or is different than the one that went before because of the way of society today. Rather, yep. various facts have changed, which I've taken account of, which lead me to change my values, and that and and the law sanctions that process.
0: Yes. Okay. So I think that I think all of that is true. Um, and by the way, one one just sort of thing to add in on that is that, in my view, the legal process uh, is the process of the legal process is is the is that kind of change you're describing i mean part of it's about technical procedures and why the importance of following them but the other part is that it's the legal process is something is sort of evolution over time it really is a vision of kind of the the evolution of uh of society and its norms changing now what you said i think is true that sometimes our norms and our values change in light of new facts i think that and that that seems right and that but that is actually less controversial what is also true is that holism seems to suggest that we could change our factual understandings in light of values. Now, that seems, contra- that seems much more controversial because it seems kind of like a you know, global warming is not happening because I want to run my you know, oil company and increase the profits. Yeah, but right? is, that,
1: is that not what's happening with the with acceptance of trans people? Right, I think you know. We know that we know more gay people. If you're if you're a heterosexual, like you know that you know more gay people. Yes. You change your values about uh, about the equality of gay people. That leads to a questioning of like what well what is gender really? And suddenly yes. your like exactly. factual understanding of the world changes. Exactly. Like there's this that interplay, the, right?
0: Absolutely. That's the and that was the example I was going to use. Oh, is, sorry. Your, no, no, that's exactly right. That's perfect. I, well, I was thinking of, of the homosexuality, not the trans thing. Although I think it probably applies there too about gender. But I was going to say when you look at the the opinion polls of um you know attitudes about you know sodomy and homosexuality and stuff and attitudes about whether homosexuality is innate versus chosen and ah, those yeah. right along right those change right along with it and it's interesting it's like well it, you know i think it's un, i mean i don't know right but i think it, i my guess would be i think it's unlikely that people kind of rationally inferred from oh i've learned from some study that it is not chosen therefore i shouldn't morally blame them instead i think it's It's they realize all of a sudden that, you know, they live around and are friends with gay people and they're fine. So their attitudes about them change. And then they think, oh, yeah, no, that seems I know this person. And, you know, I think it's I don't want to morally blame them. It's probably not something that is uh, uh, chosen.
2: So to map this back into the um, the discussion about Souter and his dissent on the question about whether to adhere to Hans against Louisiana. And his joining the troika in Planned Parenthood against Casey to adhere to Roe modified to use this undue burden thing. Um, mm-hmm. It is so. So to take Christian's scenario, right? It would be um, how you would write the opinion overruling Bowers. And right. so I guess the holist might be willing to say things like sort of the story Christian told, right, uh, which is to say, well, yeah. look, the, the reason we know Bowers was wrong exactly. is because unlike now, <laughs> the justices in Bowers and, and indeed legal elites generally didn't realize how many gay people they knew right? and how many of them were in, you know, Relationships of of real value, uh, every right. bit as important as the relationships the justices had in their own marriages. Yes. and and the, and it is because we now can appreciate those realities
1: that we know Bowers was wrong, and we're no longer going to adhere to it. You could even say they they held the kinds of prejudices that that uh, that only foreignness can produce, right? Like.
2: Yeah, and uh, but you would be willing to say that as a way to right. explain why yes. the law today should do something the law didn't do before, right? Exactly.
0: I, no, I think that's exactly which is not
2: at sure. all like w- with Kennedy's opinion
0: in Obergefell. No, no. He, well, that's what he I is no holist. No, that's right. That's right. It's very different kind of. It's all about just like large generalities of, of autonomy and you know.
1: It's, it's quietest, right? I mean, Kennedy's uh, yeah, opinion is I mean, um, it, it is all about like. Uh, uh, it, it is all about like here I have a different position in value space and yeah. here is my position and <laughs> I would have written the same thing, you know, 30 years ago. Well,
0: not quite. He does. There is some nods to sort of evolving and evolving. I, awareness. Yeah. OK, yeah. fair
1: enough. Awareness.
0: But 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 the, but but the point is, I think you're exactly right, Joe, about the barriers and one interesting thing. I mean, this is what I say in in the uh, when I teach the, the Lawrence case um, is is, uh, you, you know, Scalia takes a shot at the, at them, at the, at the, they call the Troika, right? Of the Casey Troika, all of whom are in the majority in Lawrence. Mm-hmm. And he says, look, you guys were talking so much about the importance of stare decisis. You developed this whole new theory of stare decisis. I'm not hearing anything out of any of you right. about, about, about why it's okay to overrule Bowers. Uh, and I always think that's unfortunate that no one took up that because I think there's a response to it. And it's exactly what you said. It actually fits really well with the, with the the scheme laid out in um, in Casey distinguishing Roe, on the one hand, from uh, Brown and, uh, or sorry, from, you know, um, uh, from Plessy and Lochner, I think Bowers looks much more like Plessy and Lochner because of what what the Casey troika calls a change in the facts or a change in the meaning of the facts. I think for exactly the reason you said.
2: And, and you know, at oral argument, Justice Scalia would ask questions like, so, so when exactly was when exactly was it the case that um, th- this kind of prohibition on same-sex marriage was unconstitutional? Oh, right, exactly. Because he wants to trap people right. in, in, in the, right. the feeling like if it's true so now, got- it must always have been true. Right, exactly. Um, which when you have a, a sense about fact and value and in their interdependence and the fact that the, – or, or the experience of, of things unfolding in time – Yes. Instead of being outside of time, um, you, you realize, well, I don't you know, you think you're trapping me with your with your, your snarky question, but right. but it's not. Um, but it, but it is just that it's snark. Right? Of
1: course, a premise of this is kind of is a is a commitment to common law constitutionalism. That's right. That's right? right. I mean, it, so if you reject Absolutely. that, then you can. That's right. Yeah.
0: If you that's right, and I haven't defended that or anything, right, right. In the paper more directly
1: about that, I hold on. Say more about that, Christian. If you reject common law constitutionalism, then then you would say this is not about like that kind of debate. This is about the interpretation of either a sacred text or a text of a particular type, or you know. So, so, so it's it's we should be having the debate at a meta level, and therefore questions about like when that interpretation changed are relevant in a way they. Whereas this discussion really is about. How to take account of changing fact and value right. in a in a common law system, that's right? right. So,
0: right. No, that's exactly right, and that's why I say you know in the other paper I framed more or less these same three division the, the the division among three groups in terms of a, a kind of a theory of the common law. Right, right. And so, that's, that's Souter, right.
2: Souter is there
0: for, and I misspoke when I referenced Obergefell.
2: Although Kennedy wrote all of these, um, uh, Romer, Lawrence, yeah, uh, Obergefell. Yeah, he does all. Um, so Souter is there for Lawrence against Texas. Right.
0: But then not for over. Right.
2: right. But and, but it's interesting because you sort of uh, to go to go uh, take another step in the sort of like what is it OK to talk about as a legal rationale and, and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, you can make the observation that, you know, the reason why there isn't that concurrence In a case like Lawrence is because everyone knows like like everyone shut up until Tony is finished. Exactly. And then don't say anything.
0: Isn't that why? they're? I mean, it's the same thing. My students asking in in Obergefell why this is nothing to do with the paper. This is just about the cases. (laughs) Right. Uh, You know why he throws the tears of scrutiny out the window and doesn't even bother doing anything. And someone says, why doesn't why didn't a concurrence do that? And my guess is I mean, do people is this the conventional wisdom? My guess is that they just sort of say, yeah, whatever, whatever he wants, just.
1: Right, well, I, I think they had what they had five, so No,
2: well, it's whatever he wants, and don't say anything because if he, he in a fit of yeah. peak, we could lose him right. and yes, then we're exactly.
1: done right right
0: that's why I mean that's why I sort of speculated i wasn't i mean yeah, I that's certainly what I think yeah, I mean, it is interesting, you don't get there are there concurrences in any of those ten nope. gay rights cases
1: nope, well, I mean, to write also to write something that you know it... it is you might think well, it appears like it will be a landmark, and that is written in such, you know, Brandy poetic is. poetic prose and everything. Right? It's like to say anything that diminishes that would 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 maybe give someone else doubts. So like if if you were the right. author of such an opinion, and someone else, you know, I mean, there's the hide your head in a bag from Scalia, but you kind of yeah. expect yeah. that, right? So this is right. not a Brown against Board unanimous right. thing. You're going to deal with that, but but maybe what's important is that you were kind of bucked up by yeah. Your yeah. compatriots in the decision. I think
0: that's right. Yeah, it just seems speaking with one voice. I think that's right. Yeah, because it could, is. Yeah, you know, they're big cases. So yeah, I think that's fair.
2: But a concurring justice could say, you know, I I I agree with every word, wouldn't change a thing, and there are some additional yeah, yeah. things I wanted to say. This is an important enough case where there's some additional points. And they're not even willing to do that because yeah. <laughs> because yeah. it's like, look, if you agree with every word. Implicitly, it's like if you agree with every word, what I need you to do is shut up. Mm. (laughs) Like I, I, you know, I am here to tell you what how this is going to be because it's my world, and you all just live here. Um, and uh, like it's not that I am complaining at one level because I am congenial to the outcomes of those cases, but um, boy, that will create some angry
1: emails. What I just said. Um, (laughs) All right, I am gonna I am gonna do an Inception thing here. Oh, cool! And suggest that um, that we end the episode. Yep. And that we record two minutes of pre-roll okay, with Charles.
0: Wow. Oh, Charles, nice. do you want
1: to be like, I feel sure. like this is like pulling you, like this is pulling back the curtain and letting, yeah. letting you into the, like, you know, behind the scenes but thing. But before we
0: oh, end. Awesome. I love it. I love it.
1: That's great. What do I do? Well, just hold on. Hold on. Hold oh, on the, see, the, the funny thing end, is the listeners already know.
2: No, but no. Before, before we end, though, I want to, because. I don't like these labels. So the um, oh, <laughs> I like the instrumentalism. I now understand. He had already agreed to do pre-roll.
1: Now you're going to critique it. Now he's going to like he's going to hang up oh, in a right. in a peak. No.
2: So so why aren't like holism like I get it.
1: <laughs>
2: but <laughs> it, uh, it. So so one thing I'm wondering is like is being a holist Is that a happy thing to be. Or is it, like, I keep thinking of holism as quietism agonistes. It's, it's the, it's like, you're not a quietist because you know being a quietist is, is, um, gets something wrong. Mm -hmm. But you'd be, wouldn't it be, you'd be so much happier if, if you could be quietist.
0: Yeah. Like, are, are all holists reluctant holists? I think that's right. I think it's a little, well, I, I think it's a little bit more demanding. I think it's a little bit harder
2: in a way. But they're not happy it's, about the fact that it's harder. Some people are happy when things are harder. Oh.
0: But, yeah, I don't know about that. I guess it depends.
2: Like, Justice Souter, it seems to me, is... Um, you're I, saying I, he's a tortured soul. Yeah, there, there's some... He seems a little bit reluctant about the fact that this is the way things are for him. But they clearly are that way for him. Yeah. Maybe. That, 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 fits the, him?
1: that fits the story of... Of his wanting to leave the court in part because he was kind of yeah, intellectually exactly. bored, right? He it, it was yeah. being constrained to a certain track of questions and decision-making, and he would rather climb mountains and yeah. think deeper thoughts. I don't know. Um, yeah. but, but I do know that yeah. um, our listeners want us to be quiet. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you. I don't know. Do you have anything? Charles, is there anything else? No, no, this is great. Okay, let's hit stop.